0: You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the F1 Tech Heads podcast. I am Bryson Sullivan joined today with Molly Oxner. Molly, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. How are you? It's finally race week again. It's been a nice couple weeks to relax and take a break, but now I'm ready for Singapore.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun going to Singapore. We haven't been there in, in a few years. I'm definitely very curious to see how these 2022 cars, especially with their emphasis on ground effect, deal with a very bumpy circuit of Singapore. So I'm yeah. looking forward to that.
1: I'm curious to see if it'll be akin to maybe Baku in terms of bumpiness, maybe worse, how the cars are going to handle any curb hopping that drivers like to do there and it's always one of my favorite races because it's so physical and it's tough and there's no room for error. So I guess it's been really interesting to see just as a whole because we've not been back in so long, and especially with the new car.
0: It's really been a, a fun journey. Starting this podcast, we've had some excellent people come by, Scarves and B-Sport and a few others. But I'm also glad to have a very special guest for this particular episode that many people actually know Pretty well. He's often known as F1 Data Analysis, but actually known as Mirko Bartolozzi. How are you doing today, Mirko?
2: (laughs) Hello. Nice to see you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm doing fine.
0: For those who don't know, Mirko is a PhD student at the University of Florence. His research activity focuses mostly on deepening the understanding of motorcycle dynamics and looking at novel ways to predict motorcycle behavior, and then using this knowledge to help develop innovative active assistance systems to improve motorcycle safety further. And I think something that I've always been a little bit shy about with motorcycles. So having someone as smart as as Mirko working on motorcycle (laughs) safety makes me feel pretty good about it. But I, I think all of us come to motorsport in kind of a different way. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kind of first got you into Formula One when you realized you loved it kind of as much as the rest of us do. And also, what do you do when you're not developing detailed and very helpful Twitter threads?
2: So about Formula One, I got involved in Formula One around uh, 2010, I guess. That at least is the first championship that I followed race by race coherently and not just one, reach, uh, one race uh, at the time and sometimes keeping them. And on the other side, I started uh, loving uh, the dynamics in general in high school when I started uh, studying physics. I, in general, loved physics during high school, but particularly the part of motion forces and, uh, in general, mechanics. And then these two things converged towards the end of my university program. And now I'm here uh, after uh, having done many analysis on uh, Formula One mainly, and um, trying to join this passion of physics, of uh, mechanics in particular, uh, the engineering side, and also the visualization uh, part and data analysis part, which is something that I didn't know I loved until uh, some years ago, not many, for sure between Formula One, which was the first uh, love, let's say, physics, which I discovered uh, afterwards. And data analysis, data analysis is the one that I discovered last, but it's been a pleasure for me to learn more about that. And now I I really like to read on data analysis, even applied to things which are not motorsport or Formula One.
0: Yeah, I really love that aspect of this sport. There are very few sports that people enjoy, you know, football, baseball, basketball, where there's so much detailed information available for us to kind of dig into and, and analyze. I think a lot of people have broad analytical information, you know, metrics like shooting percentage and, you know, batting average and things like that. But you can't actually see what the players are doing in real time and then analyze it in data traces. I think Formula One is kind of unique in that.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think motorsports as a whole is kind of a front of that we're seeing more and more not only across Formula 1, but the other series where we can visualize and really kind of dive into that data and understand what's happening in real time. And as a fan of many other sports where that sometimes frustrates me because I like that data, Formula 1 is such a unique spot to be in where we can do that and have the ability to look at that kind of data.
2: I really like um, these detailed and uh, uh, local Uh, knowledge that Formula One gives us, because things like statistics, like the the driver who won more races or uh, uh, every time that there is, uh, I don't know, a wet race, this driver has this percentage of uh, winning probability and so on, are things that describe the outcome and not the cause, let's say. Uh, To understand the cause, you have to look more into the local side of the statistics of the data. Because if you just look at race results, you know what happened, but not how it happened. While, for instance, if you look at telemetries or, uh, uh, yeah, local behavior, not just a lap, but even a single corner, you will learn much more on how that outcome at the end happened. So I think we've been very lucky that we have this data. Uh, So the FastF1 Python package uh, primarily, uh, because without that, our uh, knowledge our discussions would have been more uh, bar discussions without much substance. It would have been just opinions mm, surrogated by some very like not so deep data like results, as I said. So I think we've been very lucky to, to love a sport w- with this kind of information. And maybe we love this sport even more also due to this thing.
0: I don't think it's ever been easier for someone to get their hands dirty if they want to. And I think people who take the time to analyze this data, like yourself and Juan and a few others who, have, who we talked to previously, make it a lot easier than it would be otherwise. And not only that, but I think the average fan who's kind of becoming a technical savant, right, a fan mm-hmm. of the of the sport, they think of new ways to interrogate data that most people wouldn't normally show us. And for example, One of the things that I first knew you from was the attempt to actually estimate what the power levels and drag levels and downforce levels were for each of the teams and to do that in a data-driven way. And one of the ways that you tried to do that was by looking at acceleration data specifically and having terms in an equation, in a curve fit equation for aerodynamic drag and power, et cetera, and realize how that would actually show up as acceleration. Could you talk a little bit about that analysis? Is kind of one of the things I think you're famous for.
2: <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> for the thing. And um, yeah, um, the fact is that, as I said, I have an engineering background, and in particular, I'm very interested in the physics behind the engineering instead of maybe the design or the production aspects. So the difference between just looking at the data and looking at the data with knowledge of the inherent physics of the vehicle is that you can produce data which are derived from the raw data that are the ones that you can directly access. So for instance, if you look at telemetries, the signal that you have is the speed of the car. So for any given instant, you know how fast the car was moving. You can also know where the car is at that instant or was at that instant through the map, through the GPS coordinates. And that's it. You can do many analysis just with those data, but if you know the uh, underlying physics, you can use this data to produce even more and to like um, increase the size of your data set, to increase the number of variables that you have. For instance, one knowledge that is the basis of what we are uh, discussing is the concept of longitudinal dynamics. So, uh, in particular, longitudinal acceleration. If we have a car that is moving, uh, I don't know, um, at uh, 200 kilometers per hour, at a constant speed, that just means that the car, in one hour time, will move 200 kilometers. So speed, after all, is just a description of uh, how quickly the position of the object moves. However, the same concept, which is the uh, mathematical differentiation, can be applied to speed itself, to see how quickly that speed changes. So for instance, if the car is able to accelerate from 200 to 300 kilometers per hour in five seconds, it will have a higher acceleration than if it did the same thing in 10 seconds. So we can define this thing, this interesting uh, variable, which is longitudinal acceleration, which tells you how quickly the car is able to change its speed. This is true both for accel- for what we call acceleration, so uh, the phase in which the car increases its speed, like at the starting of a race, and also for the braking phase, in which phase the longitudinal acceleration will be negative. So if we take the speed signal that we have access to through the telemetry, and do this operation which is the mathematical differentiation which is just looking at how quickly the signal changes then we can obtain this other information which tells us how much is the driver pushed in front or at the back when he drives the car so in 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 some way we are able to imagine the the forces the yeah the, the, the the feeling the riding feeling of the driver just by looking at a data which is not even directly the longitudinal acceleration. So I found I find this thing very fascinating. And uh, as I was fascinated, I tried to find uh, a way to uh, obtain the longitudinal acceleration and then better ways just to have more accurate and more reliable data. And then I use them alone just as a, a time signal or combined with other signals to create many plots or even other estimated quantities like, as you said, the uh, drag and the power of the car.
0: I think that's such a cool idea because we don't normally get that level of depth, right? We normally see estimations, internal estimations for what the teams think other teams are doing in terms of what their power levels are and how much the car weighs. But the level of refinement you can actually get by doing, I guess you would call it the inverse problem. It's not so much having a car and estimating what its performance is, it's actually taking the performance and then reverse engineering what the properties of that car would actually have to be in order to actually get that particular data that you measured. One of the things that's kind of a wrinkle that we've talked about in previous discussions is you talked about acceleration and that being like a derivative of velocity, but the data that you actually get from the fast F1 package is not really, it's discrete right? And not only that, but the velocity data seems to be an integer. It goes from like 199 to 200 to 201. There's no fraction there. And I would imagine that makes things a little bit harder to actually compute the derivative of. Did you talk a little bit about what what tricks you might use in order to get around the fact that the velocity data is an integer?
2: There is no silver bullet, let's say. There is no way to improve the results in a significant way, but there are some tricks that you can use to get more reliable and, I would say, more accurate data. Because after your role you are doing a mathematical differentiation, which is something well-known, and if there was a better way, we would use that. So, what I can say is that it's a problem that the speed is an an integer, as you said, but it's not a, a very big problem. Because the fact that speed changes only one by one at least, okay, uh, make so that the uh, when you see the speed variation in that instance could be, for instance, from 200 to 201, okay, and in that case you would be correct, or maybe the real data is from 199.4 to 199.6. So you are getting the same thing for two very different things, okay? But it's not a problem, because at most you can do a 1 km per hour error, okay? So the acceleration that you get by changing the speed by 1 km per hour in the time interval, which is around 2 uh, tenths of a second, is a very small acceleration. So you have this problem. But it's not something that keeps you awake at night because you, you just produce some oscillations of the accel- the longitudinal acceleration signals, which are much, much smaller than the accelerations that this car can obtain. Just as an example, these cars can break at 5 Gs, okay? Which is around 50 uh, meters per square seconds. Which means that the car can lose 180 kilometers per hour in a second, okay? Which is like 45 for each time instant. So if you do a mistake of one, you are introducing an additional error. However, this error is uh, very small. It gets bigger relatively when you are looking at uh, smaller acceleration values, okay? Like in uh, when you are trying to see the longitudinal acceleration at high speeds, there the mistake is easier to see, but it has zero mean, okay? <laughs> if you do the step, Altogether, at that time instant, at the following time instant, you will be still. So on average, this error does not impact the results. So it's just um, like a casual, let's say, error with zero mean and very small amplitude. So this error in reality is not something I'm really concerned. Uh, However, there are some things that you can do to improve the results. For instance, there is just one way to calculate a derivative when you are talking about functions. But there are many ways to do that when you are doing it uh, numerically. By that I mean that you don't have a function like, uh, also in high school, and you take the derivative by hand, but you have data. Okay, so speed at this time, speed at the following time, and so on, and you just see the slope in that interval. Okay, there are many things to calculate that slope. The most used one is the diff. a function in MATLAB or Python and so on, which just looks at that specific delta time, so at that specific uh, time interval. But this introduces two errors. One is that it's very locally sensitive. So if, as I said, uh, there the speed changes by just one kilometers per hour, this reflects more on the error if you just take those two points, okay? And the other problem, which can be even more significant with cars like F1 cars that can change its speed in fractions of a second, is that you are effectively shifting the signal for half a time step, okay? The the sampling frequency is between 4 and 5 hertz. So if you shift it just uh, um, half a time step, you are effectively shifting it by one tenth of a second, which is significant when a car uh, breaks. So for instance, if you want to plot the longitudinal acceleration as a function of Speed. you must have two signals which are synced, otherwise you are describing things which are not correct. This problem can be solved through other ways of using, of taking the diff, mm, the time derivative. For instance, the one I use is the gradient function, which is a centered difference. Okay, so from one side, it considers the point after and the point before, so it uses a wider space, and it can be shown that for good data, this increases the reliability and the, the accuracy, you know, that better than me. And also being centered, you don't have the problem of the shifting anymore. So this is just one simple trick that you can implement very easily. It takes no more time than uh, the other way, but it immediately gives some, uh, some good results and also is able to uh, already smoothen a bit uh, the data, because given that we have, uh, integer data with uh, relatively low sampling frequency and the data uh, speed changes very fast. you will have particularly in the positive side of the longitudinal acceleration so uh, during the phases of traction you will have a lot of yeah vibrations or oscillations. So this uh, slightly also damps this problem. The other way to do that and is something which I do in very small uh, quantity, is to low-pass filter the signal. And also for that, there are ways which are better than others. For instance, you want to make sure to use a low-pass filter which does not shift the signal. Otherwise, you you get the same problem as with the differentiation. So the operation itself is quite simple, but it's not simple to know what is best to do to to achieve that. And it's also a process of trial and error. Me too have learned this thing. Uh, through my not through my studies, also through my studies, but it, it um, I really fix that into my mind when I really try to use that for the first time, and I notice the different results that you get.
1: For those that aren't MATLAB gurus, I just I'll quickly a low pass filter is basically just something that allows signals below a certain threshold to be shown. Things above that low pass filter are kind of basically attenuated and thrown out. I think I know it as like the stop hand. So for those that aren't MATLAB gurus, that just might be helpful to remember as you listen to this. So the next question I had is you gave some good examples of position, velocity, as you were kind of talking through that. But for people that don't have engineering degrees like we do, let's talk for a second about the relationship between all those variables. So the relationship between position, velocity, and acceleration. How are they computed in kind of uh, real life? And what are some good real life examples that people can reference when you're trying to think about the relationship of these variables?
2: Okay. Uh, I think I can do that. So uh, we all know the concept of position. Like the car is at the beginning of the street. Okay. And at a later time, it's at the end of the street. Imagine that the street is uh, one kilometer long. Okay, so the position just describes where the car is. Okay, uh, at the first instant it was at the beginning of the street. At the uh, last instant it was at the end of the street. The uh, like displacement is the difference between the initial and the uh, later position. So in this case, in this simple example, it would have been a displacement of uh, one kilometers. Okay. One kilometer, sorry. If you also know the time, for instance, through a chronometer, just to keep it simple, if you measure the time that that car takes to move from the first point to the uh, second point, you can relate this displacement to the time that the car needed in order to cover this displacement. Okay, it is a different thing, like a turtle and an F1 car can both move one kilometer but they will do so in different times uh, for the same given displacement the lower the time that is needed to cover it the higher will be the speed. So the speed just tells you how quickly the object is, is moving or how quickly the object is covering a certain distance. You can describe an higher speed as moving more in a given time or covering a certain distance in a lower time. They are, uh, synonymous, I would say. So this is the relationship between displacement and velocity. The same concept in a certain way can be applied to velocity to derive the uh, acceleration. In particular, the while the speed desc- or velocity describes the rate of change of the position of the object, so how quickly it changed, the longitudinal acceleration describes how quickly the speed itself changed. So all the road cars can accelerate from zero to 100, okay? But different cars will achieve that in different times, okay? So the less time is required for the car to change the speed from zero to 100, and the higher will be its longitudinal acceleration. Or for instance, for a given time, the higher is the speed differential between the beginning and the end, the higher will be the longitudinal acceleration. So longitudinal acceleration described for speed, what speed describes for displacement? Let's say, but we have to add another thing. I would say, the speed, or it's better to say the velocity, is a vector. This means that it has a value, okay, a numerical value, like 200 kilometers per hour, but it also has a, a direction. Okay, if, if you are driving on a highway, if you are driving like 100 kilometers per hour. In Italy, at least you would be lawful, okay? But only if you drive in the correct re- direction. <laughs> Otherwise, you would still get arrested. Uh, so, the direction itself is very important. Uh, we've seen that, for instance, many drivers take different lines through a corners, And when cornering, in fact, you go from one straight to another straight, which could be like uh, uh, 90 degrees uh, of relative direction, one. To the other, okay? So if you drive at constant speed, like 200 kilometers per hour, but you turn right, your speed in terms of amplitude did not change. You are still uh, moving at 200 kilometers per hour. So the amount of time that you will cover in the following seconds will be the same as the beginning. But what changed is that the direction in which the car is now moving is different than the one at the beginning. So you are still covering the same amount of uh, space, but in a different direction. So just to say that the longitudinal acceleration, what you can find in many of my graphs, describes how quickly the car is able to accelerate in the sense that it can increase its speed or to brake, while the lateral acceleration tells you how quickly the car can take a corner or how narrow can be the corner at a given speed. So let's say that longitudinal acceleration, for the positive part, tells you how much traction the car has or how pov- how powerful is the engine, how low is the drag of the body. For the negative part, it tells you how the car is able to brake, so how much braking grip it has, while the lateral acceleration really describes... How good is the car at cornering? So how much lateral grip the car has? So through longitudinal and lateral acceleration, you can really understand the grip level of the car. So it's a very interesting, it's a couple of very interesting variables to do Uh, reverse engineering, as you said before, Bryson, for sure.
0: I think what's so cool about that, these are some of the discussions that we've also had before, is that if you're trying to compute the lateral acceleration, that's actually quite a bit more involved than the longitudinal one, because you either need to have a radius to go along with your velocity information, or you have to combine, I guess you'd have a a yaw rate, right, to have a rate at which the car is changing direction and then multiply that by the speed that you're actually traveling. So there's a a ton of discussions we could get into there that I kind of (laughs) want to skip for now because I'd talk about it for the rest of my natural life, probably. (laughs) But I do want to talk a little bit about a question that you put out recently in one of your threads. I think you referred to it as an interview question, which I thought was a very interesting way to, to put it. But essentially, it was a conceptual question, and it asked the readers to kind of determine which of two cars would experience the greatest longitudinal deceleration when you left the throttle off, right? And this was a question that related to the same car with nominally the same, you know, power plant, you know, maximum power and torque, et cetera, but in a high downforce package versus a low downforce package. Would you mind walking through the problem a little bit, and then we can talk about the answer together? Because I think some people might be upset at what the actual answer is. Yeah, um,
2: <laughs> I know I was at first. <laughs> So you answer correctly, Molly? Eventually, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's an, an interesting questions, a, an interesting question and uh, it's one of those questions that I particularly fascinated with because I noticed that uh, many of my colleagues are geniuses uh, at doing very complex things like designing I don't know uh, the braking system of a racing car, okay? But with relatively simple uh, physics problems, they tend to get lost in the details and uh, they miss the, the really basic concept that's behind the problem. So it's, it's something that I just to, to see if people, which are not all engineers, um, I'm, I'm talking about my followers on Twitter, uh, but just to see if some people with uh, uh, even an high school physics background, because that's what it was required to, to answer correctly, could answer correctly. And um, the the, the votes were a a bit all over the place, but very few people, like I think three people under the the post out of 9,000 people that uh, gave the answer through polling, only three people explained the solution correctly. So the question was this one. You have two cars, one with the, it's the same car, like two uh, Mercedes W13, okay? So two identical cars, one, on a Monza setup, so a low downforce setup with the skinny wings and so on, and the other one is on a high downforce setup, so imagine Monaco with the bigger wings and and all the stuff. Of course, if both cars accelerate up to the last gear, they will reach different speeds. The higher downforce car with bigger wings will reach, in my example, 300 kilometers per hour, and the the car with the low downforce setup Will reach 350. Okay. So the question was: uh, the same, uh, the driver is driving each car, not at the same time, of course, and it he reaches the top speed of each car. Then, when he does so, and the car cannot accelerate anymore, he lifts the foot on the throttle pedal, and the car, of course, will start to decelerate due to primarily the. Uh, drag the aerodynamic resistance and in part also the engine braking and rolling resistance and so on. So the question was, which of the two cars will decelerate more in the very first instant, The one with the low uh, downforce package or the other one? It was a tricky question because we know that the aerodynamic resistance grows with speed. In particular, it, it, it grows with the square of speed. So, for instance, you can really uh, feel this thing by riding a bicycle. If you are riding at 20 kilometers per hour, you are not only feeling much more hair on your body and you get slowed down by that much more than at 10 kilometers per hour, but you don't receive double the force, but four times the force, because the speed is twice and the uh, drag will be twice squared, so four times. So uh, the the aerodynamic resistance really grows quickly, okay? So from 300 to 350, it will be a massive difference. It's a 36%. I did not do this calculation in my mind (laughs) right now, but I did that beforehand. It's a 36% difference, okay? So a, a massive difference. But at the same time, we know that the other car, the one with the higher downforce package, will produce higher drag by itself. So for any given speed, it will produce more drag. So what wins? The fact that one car has uh, a higher coefficient of drag, so more drag for the same speed, or the fact that the other one will move at a much higher speed and there is this thing of the square of the speed. So there were two ways. One was to find a way to compare them, the impact of one and the impact of the other. So you had to estimate the coefficient of drag, which you didn't have the, the data for. Okay. The other thing would have been, and it's correct answer, to use a more global approach, okay? Many people, uh, when they read this question, they start talking about, okay, but I know that the air density and the coefficient of drag and the uh, frontal area, (laughs) I don't know all this data. And so people, some people got lost with those concepts, okay? Because the aerodynamic drag is a formula an equation with many terms inside, okay? Some people instead said, okay, it's the same engine, it's the same car, so it will produce for sure the same force. So given that it's the same force and it equals the aerodynamic drag, when the driver lifts off, the deceleration will be the same. This answer is not correct because even though, and this is something which is uh, intuitive if you know what power is, but for someone which is outside uh, physics, uh, it can be a bit counterintuitive at first because you can y- you would imagine that a car with the same engine will always be trusted by that engine with the same force and maybe at higher speed the, the reason why the car starts to accelerate less would be due to the aerodynamic drag which grows. Instead there is an effect an ins- intrinsic effect of the speed on the force which is produced by the engine. This is because the uh, one of the ways to express the power, in physics in general, is uh, force times speed, okay? So you can have high power if you produce a very high force, so a very high acceleration, let's say, at moderate speed, or if you are able to still push with a nice force even at very high speeds, okay? Uh, Formula 1 cars are able to accelerate a lot at very high speeds and this is the reason why they have very high power, around 1000 horsepower. So, the fact is that as the power is a given, you don't have to know which was the power figure to solve the riddle, let's say, Uh, but just that the two cars had the same power, okay? Given that the power, which is a constant, is the product of the force and the speed, the higher the speed, the lower will be the force, okay? So the car that moves at 350 km per hour, just by the fact that it is moving faster, will be trusted forward by a lower force. This is something that very few people know, I would say. Even people that know physics, uh, at a high school level of course, intuitively think that okay you have this engine it pushes always in the same way no even if there wasn't the air resistance so you are driving on the moon the faster you go
0: <laughs> wait let me let me just imagine that for a second this is a, an important part of my of my mental exercise i need to envision uh, driving on the moon and bouncing 30 feet into, into the air okay i got it go coming
1: ahead. to okay. 2032's formula 1 season the lunar pre <laughs>
2: <laughs> so and it, For instance, you can imagine yourself that is driving a a bicycle, okay, on the moon with the flat ground, okay? Even though there is no air resistance, you will notice that if your legs provide a given power, which depends on how good of an athlete you are, okay, you will notice that starting from a standstill will make you accelerate very quickly. And at higher speeds, you will start accelerating less and less, even though there is no air resistance. This is something quite uh, strange for some people, but it, it, it what what happened. So the, the answer was, and I will summarize that afterwards, that the car traveling slower, uh, slower, which is the one with the higher downforce package, is the one that when the throttle is lift off, will decelerate more. Simply, by the fact that it was moving slower, which means that the engine at any given power will produce more force. So it will be able to overcome an higher uh, drag resistance. So as soon as the the driver removes the the, the pedal from the throttle, the air resistance, which is now higher, will slow the car more. So just to summarize, uh, for a given power at higher speeds, the, force, the thrusting force will be lower, and as the thrusting force will equal the drag force, the faster you go, the faster you are able to go due to the aerodynamic setup, the lower will be the drag resistance at your given uh, maximum speed, and the lower will be your deceleration as the longitudinal acceleration is the total force divided by the mass, which is the same for both cars.
0: I think people would understand this intuitively a little bit better if they took an extreme version of it, right? Instead of imagining a high downforce package on a car, imagine a parachute. <laughs> but a imagine you have a massive, a massive parachute, uh, a re-entry, you know, parachute on, on the back of your car, and it has so much drag that the car is only capable of doing 100 kilometers per hour, or even, or even 50, right? The ability to to travel through the air is ultimately a rate dependent phenomenon it ultimately depends on power not torque and i think the reason why people think of the thrust being constant they think almost like in terms of jet engines right i think of you know the the thrust of a jet engine not very much as a function of speed or actually it it increases slightly initially as a function of speed due to the ram effect but i think what people don't seem to realize is the way in which you actually transmit power from an engine to the wheels is a function of the gearbox Right? I mean, the, that the, exactly, the, the power itself of the engine may be constant and the torque of the engine may be constant, but the way in which that's translated into the wheel torque has to be a function of the gear ratio. And the higher the gear ratio, the lower the wheel torque. It's kind of a simple idea, but, it takes people a little bit of time to, to analyze i often get a, an analogous question when people ask me or i ask people more accurately you know if an f1 car can drive upside down you know and how would you actually calculate the forces required to do that or the minimum speed at which you can do it and everyone says oh i'll just calculate the speed at which the downforce equals the weight and they say aha you know i'm done this is the this is the answer to the problem but that's not really right because the car is is thrusted forward by the ground right and if the downforce exactly equaled the mm-hmm. weight of the car there would be no contact force oh. with the tires and the ground. So you, you'd have no no way to propel yourself forward, yeah. right? So you actually have to go slightly faster than that to be able to generate enough downforce, not only to support the weight of the car, but give you enough normal force to be able to have traction. So I yeah. just thought that
2: was a cool thing. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that's a very, very nice yeah. example. I never thought about that problem, the, the one that you are saying, maybe we'll keep it secret and <laughs> do another quiz Yes.
0: <laughs> that, that's my interview question there. <laughs> there you go.
1: I was going to say the parachute example in my mind also went to for other motorsport enth- enthusiasts, uh, the NHRA cars, where they will throw the parachute out to slow the car down. They introduce so much drag into that system that it slows the cars down so quickly because they're only on really like a half mile, quarter mile stretch and need to get those cars slowed down from a couple hundred miles an hour. Um, the amount of thrust that those things make is unreal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Tangent aside, Speaking of fun conceptual questions and threads that you've asked and started, uh, you recently asked a question about what was more powerful, a car's engine or its brakes? And I think we have it linked below, but I think some people who maybe haven't even asked or thought about this would be very, very mind blown by Mm -hmm. the answer. And can we talk about how you calculated that and how you came to that? Because I don't think I'd ever thought about it. And seeing the number, I was quite mind blown myself. I was like, wait, really? And then showing the example, I was like, okay, that makes sense. But can we talk about that? Because that was really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, just to, <laughs> to give the, the answer, yeah, the brakes of an F1 car are much more powerful than the engine. It, it's a different, a completely different kind of power. Of course, it's the same concept in the same in the in basis way, but uh, it's generated in a completely different way. Okay, but effectively, the brakes of an F1 car uh, are much more powerful than its engine. This can instead be understood intuitively, I would say, because as I said the power is force multiplied by velocity, okay? So the force is mass multiplied by the acceleration of the car, okay? So the mass is that. If the car is is accelerating or braking, it, it doesn't matter, okay? So the only things that are here that can influence the power are the acceleration and the speed. You can understand how the brakes are effectively more powerful than the engine just by thinking at... How higher is the negative longitudinal acceleration? So the uh, braking g's compared to the positive longitudinal acceleration, so the traction g's. Okay, we are around five g's of uh, five, six, it depends, of negative longitudinal acceleration and only around two, two and something for the traction phases. Okay, so we've seen that the higher the acceleration, the higher the force, the higher the power. So Given that the F1 cars break in uh, much less time, and producing much higher accelerations, uh, we'll have that the power itself will be higher when decelerating instead of uh, uh, having traction. But there is also, it's not just this, there is also another aspect. The aspect is that the traction acceleration is the highest at lower speeds, okay? Like in think second gear, third gear. As soon as the car has the traction, okay, you are around 150-180 kilometers per hour. Why is it very high uh, at lower speeds? Because of the definition of power, as, as we said, and also because the drag force is very low at uh, medium-low speeds. While on the opposite side, the braking Gs are highest at uh, higher speeds, just because the car through the wings generates downforce which is around uh, proportional to the speed squared. So at higher speeds, you will have a much stronger force to push the car onto the ground. And so you will have much more grip and the car will be able to uh, stop uh, much quicker. So both things, the fact that a car accelerates more when braking than when using the throttle and the fact that the former is done at higher speeds than the latter, Will tell you that the power is higher when braking. As I said, the power is force times speed. Force is mass times acceleration. So it's possible to estimate the power uh, with which a car is braking just by multiplying the mass, which is known by the rules, assuming a, a given um, like fuel uh, weight. Okay, uh, you can the, the the velocity you have from the telemetry and the longitudinal acceleration. We just learned how to derive that through mathematical differentiation. So so you have everything you need to compute that. This is a a very uh, like initial and rough estimation, which should give you the ballpark of the value. If you want to be more accurate, you should subtract from that the acceleration or the force, which is one and the same, uh, which is produced at that given speed by the drag. We know that at top speed, more or less, And now you could say, oh, but which top speed, 300 and 350? Well, let's say that at the top speed, more or less, the longitudinal acceleration when you uh, lift the throttle, so due to the uh, drag, aerodynamic drag, and a bit also the engine braking part, is around 1 g. So if you measure 2 g's of longitudinal acceleration, you just subtract 1 g, you get 4 g's, and that is what you input to the equation to obtain the the power so yes the the brakes of an f1 car are much more powerful but there are a couple of things if i have time that i would like to uh, say on that one is that you brake for much less time okay due to many reasons one is the fact that as i said the um, longitudinal acceleration is higher when braking so you need just to brake less okay the other thing is that the resistant forces Aid you when braking, while reduce your longitudinal acceleration while while uh, uh, trying to increase your speed. Okay, so you need more time just by by that to accelerate, so to increase your speed, than to decrease it. Okay, so you pass much more time on the straight just to fight against the drag, and you can even reach your terminal velocity than with braking. The other thing. Is that the brakes are four, so it's not just a component. It's mainly the, the front brakes which produce the the power, but still all for work. And the other thing is that you are not subject to the second law of thermodynamics when braking. Uh, I I try to, f- to to phrase that that way, meaning that when you burn fu- fuel, only a part of that fuel will be will convert into mechanical energy, so in movement, let's say, okay, and for that the F1 engines have a very high efficiency around 50%, but still you are only producing half of what you could produce, Uh, while for brakes you are instead wasting all that or, uh, except for the regenerative braking, you are almost wasting all that uh, things. Uh, so you don't need efficiency you are just trying to remove that mechanical energy it's like uh, I don't know um it's much harder to make money than to spend it let's say so it's the same <laughs> it's the same thing also for the second law of thermodynamics it's much easier to uh, to dissipate energy than to produce it for sure
0: i I love this idea because it kind of has this background of you know, the the tide of entropy increase is going all the time. We can get these temporary little swirls where we can go backwards. We can go, you know, in the other direction and reduce the entropy. But it's always happening in the background. And implicitly, that means that some things are going to be easier to do than others. It will always be easier to decelerate than accelerate. And this question of energy conversion is actually really, really kind of cool. I think what you described makes total sense because every time we hear about junior drivers driving an F1 car for the first time, Yes, they have to get their next used to the lateral acceleration. And yes, they have to get a feel for the kind of power and torque the cars can produce. But it's always the braking that always they always talk about whenever they come out of the car for the first time, the incredible amount of braking that the cars have. And it's not just because they have bigger discs or beefier calipers. It's precisely because of the downforce mm-hmm. that the cars make that they're able to sustain so just such extreme braking. And also they have so much drag that's added on top of the the actual mechanical braking that it just has a, a huge impact on what the actual performance of the car is. I think something you touched upon really interests me as well, which is sometimes in order to estimate one parameter, you could do it in a steady state situation. But you would need to know another parameter that you don't know either to, to figure it out. We have something analogous to this in aviation where you'd want to say, what's the installed thrust of an engine, right? You're not on the test you but actually in flight, what's the actual installed thrust? It's like, okay, well, level flight, the thrust should be roughly equal to the drag. It's like, okay, well, what's the drag? <laughs> Do you actually know to a very precise degree what the drag of your actual aircraft is? And you say, oh, no, because I have experimental data, and internal data, but but you need actual real world data. And oftentimes it turns out the only way to figure out both the drag and the thrust is to do dynamic maneuvers. You used to do climbing situations or or descending or bank turns and backwards calculate what the thrust and drag would have to be in order to observe the things that we actually see. So I think it's just kind of a, a cool way to solve the vehicle dynamics mm-hmm. problem that I don't think people talk that much about but i think is a, a cool thing to focus on one of the other threads that i thought was really cool this is something that you and i have discussed previously i think it was around the time of, of monaco is this idea of reverse ackerman steering i remember there were a lot of people looking at the cars going around monaco and seeing the driver turn the wheel and realize that the left and right tire don't actually turn the same amount when you're turning and some people were thinking Is it because the suspension is broken? Is this an optical illusion? You know, I I know some people were looking into it, and I think I may have been one of the first people to comment on what that actually was, but I think you did write a very popular thread describing it and how it actually improves the ability to sustain high cornering. So is there any way you could talk a little bit about that reverse Ackerman Mm -hmm. idea and how it's actually used in in F1 cars?
2: Uh, Yeah, it's a very interesting aspect. It's much more um, like sophisticated than other things that we spoke before, okay, because uh, it, it's something more in detail because it's uh, specific of uh, vehicle, uh, not even vehicle dynamics, but vehicle uh, design and construction too. So uh, the fact is that the the inner and the outer tire will not in general rotate to the same degree when taking a corner. This is something that in general uh, is made at least for uh, uh, normal cars to reduce the tire scrub, so the f- the tire wear itself. Because if you think about it, it, it you can s- understand that very well. At tighter corners like roundabouts, the uh, inner tire, the inner front tire, will be on a, a, a smaller radius than the outer front tire. So it will need to rotate more, just to roll well, to not 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 to scrub laterally. Okay. This thing is called Ackermann steering, so the Ackermann steering is a steering which makes the inner tire rotate more, okay, uh, of the exact amount that is needed, not to make the outer or inner tire uh, slide laterally, okay. This is what commonly happens on road cars. In reality, no car has an exact Ackermann steering, it can be slightly pro Ackerman or slightly anti Ackerman. Pro Ackerman means that it's like Ackerman, I don't know, increased, okay? So while Ackerman says, hey, you have to make the inner tire rotate more than the outer, pro Ackerman w- means that compared even to the Ackerman steering, it will rotate even more, okay? While anti Ackerman is the opposite. So maybe the inner tire will still rotate more than the outer tire, but less so than with the standard Ackerman steering, okay? In F1 cars, this thing at least in the past was so extreme, the anti-Ackermann feature, that you c- you could really see it on uh, tighter tracks like Monaco where the steering angles are uh, more noticeable, that uh, the outer tire actually rotated more than the inner tire. And as I said, given that the Ackermann steering is needed not to make the uh, one of the tires scrub making the outer tire rotate more than the inner tire will produce a significant sliding of the outer tire. People could think that this is uh, um, something uh, bad, okay, and it is in some ways because it increases the tire wear, but we have to think that F1 cars have the ultimate goal of performance and we know from tire testing, uh, of which I did also some research about, we know that the higher the load which is acting on a tyre and the more the tyre will slide in order to produce its maximum potential force. Okay, so the outer tyre is in general more loaded than the inner tyre due to the centrifugal force, let's say, which will will load the outer tyre more. So given that the inner tyre is less loaded and the outer tyre is more loaded, the outer tyre will have to slide more in order to produce, its to extract its maximum force con- compared to the inner tire so the anti Ackerman feature is a, a very interesting thing that you can use to extract all the potential of the tires okay which have different uh, requirements as the outer tire will uh, will um, answer to your inputs while having a different load so we can expect that Tires at different load will behave differently. So, there is no way to think, no reason to think that you should give them the same thing, okay? Each one needs a different slip angle. And I also had uh, this um, um, experience because the Formula I had uh, I designed together with the uh, students that I supervised had an anti Ackerman uh, uh, steering uh, mechanism. Uh, and our uh, choice was based on this. We, we, we had to choose between two ty- two different uh, tire manufacturer, and the one that we chose uh, at the end, which was Continental, had a much higher effect of the vertical load on the ideal slip angle. So we had no no way to choose a normal steering. We had to choose the anti-Ackerman steering to extract all the potential of the car. Of course, uh, the, the pro-Ackerman or anti-Ackerman steering the anti ackerman steering, of course, is more uh, relevant for uh, uh, high performance vehicles or like the Alfa Romeo Giulia Quadrifoglio or race cars, OK, but it also has some uh, effects on other behaviors like corner entry, uh, camber recovery and all this stuff, tow and so on. Uh, but uh, at the end, this is the main uh, aspect. And probably one of the easiest to understand, even though <laughs> I understand that it's not as easy as some things that we discussed before.
0: It's almost like a very elegant solution to a complex problem. And as you mentioned, it is kind of a dance. It's kind of a balance because you would want to optimally load uh, the outer tire more mid-corner. When you're a mid-corner and you have a significant amount of lateral G, you can put so much more load on the outer wheel. But the question is, what happens at the initial turn-in? At the exact moment of turn in before you've actually generated enough lateral load to get the asymmetry, that anti-Ackerman is actually hurting the turn in, right? Because at the very instant you turn, you're sliding more. You have more sort of retardation scrub drag on the outside wheel, which is actually turning you away from the corner instead of into it. So you actually might sacrifice the corner entry a little bit in order to gain more on ultimate grip when you're a mid corner, which I I thought was kind of cool. And I also think about the difference between, you know, high grip rubber to tarmac configuration versus what you might do for something like a Baja, right? A, a dirt track where you're focusing more on one versus the other. So I just thought that was a very cool thing to, to kind of evaluate. And it was also an interesting way to convince people who aren't familiar with the problem that you're not seeing something that's purely an optical illusion. This is actually a design feature of the car and it's done in a way to make the car performance even better than it would be otherwise.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's fun to think about that too, knowing that the F1 cars also have differentials, which can, Change the way the two wheels spin as well for cornering. So tying the Ackerman in with diff positions and what their ultimate goals are there is also something that I'm sitting here just kind of pulling a thread on. I'm like, I'm going to go think about this a little bit later. But that's also, it was kind of something that my brain just was like, oh, hey, that's interesting to think about. So now using your analysis tools, you attempted to make a breakdown of each major team and what their relative strengths and weaknesses are with the cars um, compared to the others, top fo- top speed, uh, downforce, and so on. Would you mind sharing some of your findings from that uh, and what stood out the most to you or what was something that surprised you by that comparison?
2: So that, uh, that analysis, but it was not a rigorous analysis on some specific data. It was just the synthesis of what I learned just by doing all the analysis that I did every weekend. Uh, I I did that analysis after the uh, Canadian Grand Prix. So we are talking about um, like after, I think, seven races or so on. So uh, we we were closer to the first race than to now. So they were relative to how the cars were at the beginning. Uh, The main findings, however, I would say um, live to to today, because concerning the first cars, uh, it was that the the main difference between the Ferrari and the Red Bull was the very high power of the Ferrari, together with the very good mechanical traction, uh, and the very good downforce too, which helped massively in braking in the medium to high speed corners, while well, the Red Bull had the main um, pro of uh, um, having very low aerodynamic resistance and yet a very good downforce. I think at the beginning it, it was like the second best car based on downforce, I, I think. But it was first by far for the low drag um, aspect. So it was a, a very, very good machine. Even at that time, the Red Bull had sometimes a better race pace than the Ferrari, which is... Uh, something which is mostly, on average, is linked to the downforce that the car produces. In general, the more downforce the car is able to produce, at least up to a certain level, and the better will the tire wear be. Uh, It was not the case in that example, because you are not comparing, like, I don't know, the uh, the SF-1000, which was a car with a very bad engine, uh, that really had to run compromise setups in which the downforce really was below the much lower than the optimal level, and so you also had some problems of tyre wear in the races, like in France that year. We are talking about two cars which had very good or excellent downforce. So at that level, the higher downforce does not necessarily help you or can even hurt you, like in 2020 uh, in the Silverstone Grand Prix, where Ferrari and Leclerc got a podium, just because they went for a very low downforce setup. And so the tire wear was very good through all the fast corners, and they did not make the tires explode also due to that. So these were the main findings uh, concerning the the first two cars. Uh, And I also would add Mercedes, which was a very different car at the beginning. It was, and it still is, I would say, a car with very high drag. It was the car with the highest drag, um, it was like... On the same level as the McLaren, now that is not true anymore, uh, but it's still one of the druggiest car, but it had and still has bulletproof uh, reliability, because I don't remember a reliability problem ever in a race uh, this year, no retirements due to that. Uh, the, there was there were slightly
0: marginal at the end of the Spanish Grand Prix, um, where they had a, a water leak issue that required them to back off. But that was really the only thing. They, they certainly didn't have a, a mechanical DNF okay. so far so this the, season, which is yeah rare. They
2: lost very few points, <laughs> maybe just due to that. No, remember if that influenced the, the results. Surely better than Leclerc that race, and even Verstappen with the DRS problem. Uh, so it, it was a car which suffered a lot. The for poison. It's. Proposing is something uh, uh, multifaceted, it's something hard to look at because you only see the results, which is the bouncing. But you don't know if the bouncing is due to the aerodynamic uh, properties of the car or the fact that the team is running a very stiff uh, setup, which makes the car bounce on the, um, on the bumps. And you could say, okay, you could just look at the, how this thing varies with speed Okay but even that is not very true because the faster you go the, the 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 acceleration of the wheels for a given bump goes with the square of the frequency so of the square of the speed of the car so you see that both drag and downforce and the acceleration of the wheels which multiplied by the mass of the wheel will, will give you the force which is transmitted to the harsh see, they both go with the square of the speed. So, no, you can't say that just by looking at um, at the speed alone, okay? You would have to compare uh, like a very flat stretch with the more bumpy stretch, but you can't uh, like um, assume that the bumpiness also affects the propulsion. So it's very hard to understand uh, who is what. Uh, but it seems that uh, after, um, Barcelona, they found a way to uh, overcome the strictly porpoising problem through also a much stiffer setup, which reflected on the bouncing, which was now due to a different effect. So these are the main three cars, but there were some interesting aspects also down the field, like the fact that the Williams, also at the beginning, was a very low drag car, and for instance, the fact that the Alfa Romeo was a very, very, very competitive car race pace wise, but they lost that uh, performance uh, sadly through the season and uh, other stuff like, as I said, the McLaren, which instead had a very high drag. So you, you people were were talking about, for instance, engine power. Okay. Yeah. Uh, given to many rumors, Mercedes was not running the engine uh, 100% at the beginning, due to reliability problems. But this does not uh, uh, explain the difference between Williams and McLaren, because it's the same engine. So unless really the airs is tuned completely different at all the races, you cannot explain such a big uh, speed difference through through power. So it's, uh, it's all drug related, as we said uh, before.
0: I can imagine one escape clause there where we know that the teams have different cooling configurations, even if they have the same power unit, and either the cooling could have different drag levels for each of the teams, or it could not be efficient enough to allow the engine to run as hot as it could for other teams, and that could be one of the mitigating factors that I could think of off the top of my head. But that's that's a whole other discussion that we could have for a long time.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if you want to get me down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I, will, I will go down the rabbit hole of power unit integration.
0: Yeah, I, that might be a, a fun topic for another episode. But as we're starting to sort of wind down here, I do have a couple of questions for you. One of them had to do with establishing overall performance level. We talked about being able to compute longitudinal acceleration, being able to compute lateral acceleration, Broadly speaking, the further you can get away from zero-zero in the GG plot, right, the greater acceleration that you you can perform, it tends to result in better performance and lower lap time. But it seems like there's a lot of data that would show up from this type of analysis, and you need a way to mathematically bound the acceleration data and figure out in some sort of an average sense, which is actually better. And I know in some of your plots, I've seen some very nice sort of convex hull type of <laughs> shapes that you use yeah. to, to actually, in a mathematical sense, establish which car has the best overall acceleration. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? And then I have a question for you about gear ratios.
2: Concerning the convex hull, it's just a polygon, Okay which includes all the points of interest. OK, so uh, sometimes you see those plots with, uh, I don't know, like uh, five or six qualifiers. Uh, you have a, a grade at each and you see this uh, polygon that shows how big is the area. So it gives you an idea of, on average, which is the global situation. And I did the same thing uh, through the Gigi plot because, uh, to determine the grip of the car, which is what we want to achieve with the ggplot, plot, you are not interested in uh, moderate accelerations. You want to see the exact maximum values, okay? You don't see grip when you go uh, in Curva Grande in Monza at full throttle because you don't know how faster you could have gone, okay? You see grip when you take, for instance, Ascari, okay? So a corner in which the more grip you have, the more the faster you can go and the more lateral acceleration you have. So the convex hull is simply the smallest polygon that includes all the points. Okay. So just by looking at the, how big the, the polygon is, you can see which car has more grip talking about the ggplot. plot. And instead looking at the shape of the convex hull, you can understand which are the uh, properties of the car. And also I would say of the driver, because it's, quite driver dependent. For instance, you can have that in the GG diagram, uh, this convex hull will uh, extend in the lower part or it could deviate on one side, which means that uh, while the former driver is braking straight, the other is not. It's braking while the steering is is moved uh, slightly. This is something that you can uh, see about driver behavior, which is quite... Uh, like surprising because you are using some telemetry data to derive other quantities. You plot these quantities into this uh, graph. You use mathematics to to produce this polygon, and that tells you something on the preferences of the driver, which is something very, very, very strange, I would say. And also, you can see some aspects of the track itself. For instance, if the fastest corner are on the left or on the when, uh, when you are moving on the left or on the right, because if the GG plot is not symmetrical, okay, it will mean that the corners on one side will be covered with more grip than the others, which means that um, the corners on one side are faster because you, then you have more downforce and you can reach higher lateral acceleration. So that was it, concerning the GG diagram.
1: From That data that you were talking about, how do you go about computing the gear ratios and engine RPMs based on that speed data?
2: That is something which is not so convoluted or complex compared to the drag or uh, power estimation, for instance, because the law which links the two things is uh, simple, is known. For a given gear, the uh, vehicle speed is linked to the uh, RPM in, with the proportionality, okay, which is given by the length of the gear itself, which is what we are trying to estimate. Uh, it's different, of course, for uh, each gear. Um, and, and also the other thing that makes that quite simple is that differently from the accelerations, for example, we have those data directly. We have the speed of the car and we have the um, the RPM data directly. So um, we just have to do some simple regressions. Uh, What I did was just, it's something that I did today, so it's still uh, a work in progress, but the scientific part is already decided. What I did was uh, just to plot for each gear, uh, the speed of the vehicle as a function of the RPM. So for each instant, which is the speed, which is the engine RPM? That's one point. Then at the next instant, another point related to the following uh, situation and so on. One for every gear, okay? And for the single gear, you will have a cloud of points, okay? Which will more or less align through a line, which must pass through the axis uh, origin, okay? Not because it's something that we see from the data, but because it's something that we know it's true due to the physics and the uh, mechanics that links the two things. So this is the importance of a model. Uh, if you look at the, the plot that I did the first time, you had the third gear, which was a cloud with no particular shape, okay? I did the regression without setting the intercept. So I said, okay, you just have to make a line pass through that cloud. And the line was <laughs> with the <a> wrong <laughs> slope. It was the, the other way. So the, the faster you went, the, the, the lower were the RPM, okay? So That is something that really tells you a lot about the importance of the knowledge of the model that you are using to fit the data. So what I did was just doing a cloud of points of different color for each for the points relative to a different gear. The higher gears uh, will have points which were more on the right. So for a given RPM, you were traveling at higher speeds that you can have experience while driving normally. And then I did a regression line for each uh, clouds. And I Uh, forced that line to pass through the origin. Uh, I just did that for uh, a single lap of a driver and the results were, I would say, quite nice. I thought (laughs) I would have gotten worse results. To have more accurate results, you can use an entire race or even an entire season as the gear ratios do not change race after race as, as of now. They could before, but not since we have these new V6 engines. So the more points you have, the the more sure you are about your estimation, as as long as all the points have the same reliability, let's say. One other thing that I I did not implement yet, but I want to, in order to make this estimation even more robust, is to use a robust fitting algorithm, which means that uh, the points which are very far from the cloud are uh, have a lower weight than the ones which are more around the cloud because, okay, if a point is farther from uh, the line, it's a problem because you have some dispersion, okay, which lowers your accuracy. But if you have a point which is unrealistically uh, far from your line, it cannot be due to uh, the noise of the, the signal, it it will be some error in the data. so. There are some techniques, um, some algorithms to filter out these points which have no physical sense so that they do not pollute the result. So what I'm going to do is to estimate the gear ratios for all the, at least for the gears from the second to the eighth because the first gear is only used uh, at launch for all 10 cars, okay? And then what I plan to do, this is uh, something that I didn't say before, is to use this gear ratios to try to see if the rear axle is uh, locking up or if the car has some traction problems. Because now we know the the gear ratio. So if the RPM are higher than predicted, it means that uh, you have a lot of uh, wheel slip. If the RPM are lower than predicted, it means that the rear tires are locking up. So this is something that I'm trying to to use this uh, previous analysis uh, uh, to.
0: I love that type of a plot because there's something almost poetic about just taking raw data. You just have engine RPM data, you have speed data. It just seems like a random collection of points. But if you just go through the process, don't even worry about the regression. Just plot all of these points. You naturally start seeing these clustering points. You naturally start seeing these lines emerge. And the lines are more defined at the higher gears because there's less wheel slip and variation and things like that. But I always thought it was kind of a cool process to say, not only do you have a mathematical model of how the actual data should look in terms of what the y-intercept should be based on kinematics and the gear ratios and everything, but also just plotting the raw data automatically in kind of an emergent sense produces the lines that you expect to see based on what you know about the model, which I thought was very cool and And thank you for shedding some light on that. This has been a a very interesting conversation. I'm glad you've taken the time to talk to us about some of the behind the scenes things about the analysis that you've done. I'm sure many, many people already know who you are. I think you're very close to 50,000 followers on Twitter uh, the last time I checked. But in case people don't know where to find you, where can they find you on Twitter or Instagram or your Buy Me Coffee page?
2: My handle is the same for all the socials. I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter currently, and also uh, Reddit. Uh, the handle is uh, F1 Data Analysis. Okay, uh, that's it. And um, I, I mainly post on Twitter, meaning that Twitter is my main social. But then all the contents, the images, the analysis, and so on, I will also export to Instagram. So in case you don't have Twitter, you you can follow me on Instagram. Or if you have both, even better. And for the most part like 95% of my contents are of course free so this is what uh, I, I really enjoy to 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 give people a free um, education let's say in a funny way on the world of uh, motorsport of data analysis physics and engineering but if you in case you want to support me or if you want to unlock to see more detailed analysis Uh, with discussions which are suited like for this podcast, but not for very short Twitter uh, tweets, Uh, you can find my page uh, on my Buy Me Coffee, and by becoming a member, you will unlock these additional posts and analysis. However, uh, you can find me anyway on uh, Twitter and Instagram, as I already said.
0: All right. Well, Thank you very much. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next episode coming out. We have another very special guest coming. And I'm also looking forward to talking a little bit about the Singapore Grand Prix eventually when we get there. Uh, Molly, did you have anything else?
1: No, I say we got to make it to Singapore first, right? Um, but no, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was so fun and so interesting. And I love kind of hearing a little bit more about your process and some of your analyses and and shedding light on what you do because it's awesome
2: i will thank you too because uh, participating to this podcast has been very very pleasant i didn't know that we would have this uh, ability to uh, focus really in depth on the technical details compared to other podcasts i would say this is uh, the one that goes more in depth on the analytical and technical aspects. And I really enjoyed that because it was like a discussion with, with colleagues, with other uh, guys doing research or working on the field. So it's been uh, a very pleasant hour and something. Uh, and I really enjoy discussing these uh, this results. and this So thank you again for having me and also to, to give me this uh,
0: All right, that'll do it from us. Thanks for coming on, Mirko, and we'll see you guys next time.